0: Please go ahead and open in your Bibles to Psalm 103. If you're using one of the Bibles we've given you, you can find it on page 502. It's often said when we're having a political conversations that you can't legislate morality. Now there's a of problems with that statement because we legislate morality all the time. But it does get to something true about laws that they have limited effect. So we, we can make a law, but we can't, a law can't change someone's heart. At best, we hope the law perhaps restrains someone who has evil intentions. <clears throat> and so we recognize that, that human law and human hearts uh, often are in, are in conflict. But I want to consider this morning God's law. When God commands something, how does that interact with the human heart? On one level, we recognize that same conflict. Often our hearts desire something contrary to God's law. And we'd also recognize that the bare law of God doesn't change anyone's heart. But we also recognize God has an authority to command the heart that really no human law can really claim. And one place we see that authority on display is here in the first words of Psalm 103. If you would just read with me verses 1 and 2 to start. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. In, this, in these two verses, we see a commandment to bless The Lord, a commandment from God to praise him. Now, we know this was first sung in in the worship of Israel, but I think we can understand this as a universal command. All people are commanded, bless the Lord. God is not just the God of Israel. He's the God of the whole earth, as we'll see at the end of this psalm. And all the earth is commanded to praise. I wonder if you've considered and grappled with that. God commands you. God would tell your heart how to respond to him. And God would call you to repentance if your heart would not bless him and offer him the praise that he deserves. As God's people, we recognize this command to praise God as a a call to worship, right? That's how we begin each one of our worship services is with with a passage of scripture in which we're called to come and praise the Lord. And this psalm begins by commanding us to worship God, not only with our lips or with our bodies in some way, but he commands us to praise God with our souls. Oh, my soul, praise the Lord. And then he expands all that is within me. This is a calling not to lip service, but to to whole-souled praise of the Lord. With all that we are, we're to praise God from the bottom of our hearts, as we'd say it. Now, in verse 1, the psalmist calls our attention to the Lord's holy name. And as we explore the following verses, I want us to keep this in mind, that this whole psalm, I think, is intended for us to read in light of God's holy name. The holy name of the Lord is being proclaimed to us in this psalm. But here, especially the name of the Lord that the psalmist, who's David, has in mind is the name Yahweh. At least that's how... We would say it in English. I've heard that's really a butchering of the Hebrew pronunciation, but I do a lot of butchering of Hebrew, so that's okay. So the the Lord here means Yahweh, and this name is significant because this is the name that God revealed to Moses in the burning bush. So in Exodus chapter 3, when God is calling Moses to come and be the deliverer for his people, he reveals himself as I am, and that's where we get this name Yahweh. So This is a name that's especially associated with God's covenant love, with the way God binds himself to his people for the sake of saving them. And so as as we begin here in this psalm, and, and David calls us to bless God's holy name, to bless the name Yahweh, Israel is being reminded of the covenant that God established with them after the Exodus, the covenant that really made them a people. And we see that further in the psalm, as we'll look in a minute, the way that Moses is mentioned and God's people Israel are mentioned. But as we begin, we're we're to begin by remembering who God is, his holy name, and what he's done. That's where the psalmist goes next. Forget not all his benefits. So who God is and what he's done. That's what this psalm unpacks for us. It's like many other psalms in that it's a psalm of remembrance. Forget not all God's benefits. It calls Israel to reflect upon the things that God has done in the past. So in that way it's historical, but it's not only historical. Because in proclaiming God's righteous character, he's proclaiming something that never changes. And we'll see that as well, that God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. In verse 17. So God's people here and now in the context of the psalm are to bless him for who he is and what he's done and what he will do. Because God, the God who rescued them from Egypt, who has poured out all these benefits upon them, he is the same God. By his grace, he is still saving and his kingdom will have no end. And that's how this psalm ends, with a look at God's universal rule. So this psalm looks backwards and forwards, and it calls us to worship in all of our looking. It's a psalm that's pregnant with the expectation that God will save in a new way in Jesus. And so it's not just a psalm for ancient Israel to sing, it's a psalm for us to sing, who are Christians here today. We worship God by remembering his benefits and by knowing his gracious character. And we do that by faith in Jesus Christ. So this morning we're going to walk through this psalm, this call to worship, by looking at five callings to worship within it. So we are called to worship first, the redeeming God. Second, the forgiving God. Third, the fatherly God. Fourth, the everlasting God, and finally, the ruling God. So we're called to worship the redeeming God, the forgiving God, the fatherly God, the everlasting God, and the ruling God. Let's start looking at the redeeming God by reading the first part of the psalm. We're going to read uh, verses 1 and 2 again, and we'll read all the way down through verse 7. So give your attention to God's word, Psalm 103 of David. He made known his ways to Moses, his act to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So we've already reflected on this a little bit, but this psalm begins with this call not to forget or to remember all that the Lord has done for Israel. But before we look at the specifics of this redeeming work, I do want to try to unpack this uh, context of the Exodus that lies behind this psalm. So in verses six and seven that we just read, we saw these references to the oppressed and to Moses and the people of Israel. And then in verse eight, we have what is almost a, a direct quotation from Exodus 34:6, where the Lord reveals himself to Moses. This is one of the, the crowning heights of the book of Exodus, this revelation of God when Moses asks to see God. Mark never calls this passage, Exodus 34, 6, and 7, the riddle of the Old Testament. So let's listen and see if you can hear the riddle. I'm going to read Exodus 34, 6, and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Do you hear the the conflict there? That the Lord is abundantly gracious and slow to anger, and yet he will not clear the guilty. We're not told in Exodus how these two things are are fully reconciled. We're just told them both. He is the God of perfect justice and abundant forgiveness. And the answer to the riddle really doesn't, can't be found in the Old Testament, right? It's a riddle that can only be answered by what God does in the New Testament in Christ. But my point here is simply to say that this psalm is drenched in the story of the exodus in God's revelation of himself to his oppressed people, right? His people cried out to him from their oppression in Egypt, and God heard their cries, and God delivered them. And God reveals himself as the God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. In righteousness, God judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and he redeemed his people. So we have that, that Exodus context in mind, But I'm also convinced we have another exodus context in mind, and that's the new exodus that we sort of referenced in the reading from Jeremiah. In the Old Testament, there is the hope that what God once did in this dramatic saving work in Egypt, that he will do for his people again. That he will restore them from where they've been scattered among the nations in Babylon and Assyria and throughout the, the Near East. That they will be restored and they will once again enjoy this fellowship that they had with God after the exodus. So you hear the the new exodus proclaimed in the prophets, like Isaiah and Jeremiah. And I think even in this psalm, we see a connection between the first exodus and our psalm and the new exodus. And that connection is through this imagery of the eagle in verse 5. You see that through God's redeeming work, all these things he's going to do, that their youth will be renewed like the eagle's. It's a picture of rejuvenation, of new life. And this is an image that comes from Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, where Moses uses the imagery of eagles' wings carrying the people from Egypt to God. And we see this carried forward in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, which is kind of the the paramount New Exodus passage. Isaiah chapter 40 begins with a call to prepare the way of the Lord the way that God will lead his people. And it's this passage in Isaiah 40 that is quoted for the prophet John as he comes to prepare the way of the Lord for Jesus. And so at the end of Isaiah 40, this new Exodus passage, we find this in verses 30 and 31. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So we take Moses' wings of eagles in Exodus 19, and we think, take David's strength of eagles in Psalm 103, and we get Isaiah's strength and wings of eagles that God will use to carry his people out of their bondage to sin and death and bring them into the comfort of the gospel. So Psalm 103, I think, is a, it's an Exodus and a new Exodus psalm. It's meant for God's people who are awaiting redemption and who are ultimately finding redemption in Jesus Christ, God's deliverer. So just as God renewed and delivered Israel on eagle's wings, so he renews and delivers his people in Christ. So that's a long way of saying this psalm is for us. It is for a new Exodus people to come and bless the Lord for all that God has done in our lives. Just as Israel had something to remember, something to forget not, so do we, God's new covenant people. We enter into this psalm and we find things that we are to remember, things that we are to forget not. So look at these things, these five descriptions of God's redemptive work in verses three and four. The Lord forgives all your iniquity, He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. The Lord crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord satisfies you with good. I wonder if we're even meant to see a kind of of death and resurrection trajectory here. We start with our sin. In the middle we have redemption from the pit, which is a picture of death and destruction. And we end with crowning and being satisfied in goodness. But what I want you to see is that the foundation for this redeeming work is the forgiveness of God. Israel needs forgiveness. We need forgiveness. And God forgives sin. This is how God deals with our sin. He forgives it. This is how God deals with our our weakness and death. He redeems us from the pit. And then he crowns us with steadfast love and mercy. The commentator David Howard explains that to be crowned with something is to be characterized by it in this case characterized by God's love and compassion so we're no longer defined by our sin we're crowned with God's love we're defined by his love and compassion we're redeemed the picture here is of of total redemption of complete restoration God's work is complete now, but to be clear, we don't enjoy the fullness of this completion in this life, right? We're, we're all too aware that physical diseases remain. We know that we'll only enjoy the fullness of this when Jesus returns and we're raised from the dead. But the psalmist wants us to worship the God who does redeem so totally and so graciously. He is the God who rescues people from sin sin. And death, people who are in the pit, who are enslaved. He brings them out of that pit to new life. This is the promise that's held out in the gospel. Right? It's no mistake that when Jesus comes, what does he come doing? He comes healing the sick, raising the dead, pronouncing forgiveness on those who trust in him. Jesus is the fulfillment of these, these things. We're to remember. He is the one who does these things. He is why we're to worship the redeeming God. And the chief way we worship the redeeming God is to trust in Christ's saving work. That's how we worship. So are you worshiping God? Are you trusting in the saving work of Christ? Have you acknowledged your sin before God? To to acknowledge your sin means that you, you see the way that you're dead in sin, that Your sins have have led you astray like a lost sheep. That you're enslaved to your sin. That on your own, you're powerless to change your ways or, or to pay for your sins. And do you believe that when Jesus died on the cross, that he was dying in your place to pay the price that your sins deserve? That he suffered for you? It's through Christ, through faith in Christ. That sinners are redeemed. That the dead find life. It's through faith in Christ that we come to be crowned with God's steadfast love and mercy. There's There's no crowning that can circumvent Christ. It's by faith in Christ that we're granted the taste buds we need to be satisfied with God's goodness. So are you worshiping the redeeming God? Have you trusted in Christ? That's where the psalmist would have us begin. After this list of God's redeeming works, the psalmist moves on to tell us why God does this. And we've already taken a peek at the reason that he does this by reading and talking about verse eight. God redeems because he is the God who abounds in steadfast love and mercy. He is the God who is slow to anger, And so he extends patience to his people so that he can forgive them. Let's read again this second stanza, verses 6 through 10. Or read part of what we already read and read read a few more verses. Verses 6 through 10. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So the Lord is not only the redeeming God, but he is the forgiving God. He is the God who does not deal with us according to our sins. Think back to God's salvation of Israel from Egypt. He doesn't save them from Egypt because they are the best. Because they're top nation. He saves them because he set his love on them. Because he chose to love them. He saves them because of the promises he graciously made to their father Abraham. So he doesn't save them because Israel are the good guys and Egypt are the bad guys. It was an act of his grace. And we, we see that in that you know, Israel has to be saved through the blood of the Passover lamb. And even as they're brought out of Egypt, they have to be sprinkled with the blood of the covenant. They need atonement for their sins. So the the big story of Egypt is that God did not deal with Israel according to their sins. And as we see Israel's story, we just see that again and again. God does not deal with them as their sins deserve. And that's the good news for us as well. God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Have you ever given much thought to, what does my sin deserve? Have you thought about that? What kind of repayment should you get for your sin? The scriptures teach us if we haven't perfectly obeyed God's word in every bit, then we've sinned. We are sinners against God. If you've not given God the honor he deserves as God, as your creator and perfectly good and righteous father. If you've not honored him that way, then you are a sinner. You've sinned against him. God's word is clear that all of us are born with a sinful nature after Adam. We're we're born with these inner hearts that are rebelling and in rebellion against God. And, And not only do we have that nature, we've all acted on that nature. We've acted on that sinful nature in ways that we can't even keep track of. And some we might not even be aware of. Only God himself knows the number and measure of our sinfulness. And so if God were to deal with us according to our sins, and to repay us according to our iniquities, we would deserve hell forever. And he would be perfectly just to do, to do that to us, to send us there forever. That's our proper payment As the Apostle Paul will put it later, those are the wages of sin. That's the thing we've stored up for ourselves, is God's wrath. But here we're told that He does not deal with us that way. He does not deal with us according to our iniquities. And yet, we're back to that riddle. We're told in verse 6 that He's righteous, He's righteous in all His works. How is that so? Well, the answer to the riddle is found in Romans chapter 3, verses 21. We're told that Jesus reveals the righteousness of God. And Paul goes on to say in the following verses, beginning in verse 22, that the righteousness of God he's talking about is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He says, there's no distinction among Jews and Gentiles. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That funny word at the end, propitiation, is the key. It refers to the turning away of God's wrath. So through the blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus... God's wrath is turned away from us guilty sinners and poured out upon Jesus, the perfect son of God. Jesus' death. In Jesus' death, the perfectly righteous one pays the price that our sin deserves. And he did this in order to satisfy God's righteousness. So God can righteously forgive sinners by judging their sin in Jesus. It's because of the work of Jesus that God is the forgiving God. It's only because of the work of Jesus that God does not deal with us according to our sins. If you're a Christian, isn't this good news? If you are in Christ, your sins don't define you. You are at the same time righteous and a sinner. A sinner who's been justified by the work of Christ. So if you've trusted in the work of Christ for forgiveness, you've been justified. You stand before God righteous. You are not in your sins. And God does not deal with you according to your sins. God deals with you according to Jesus, according to Christ. God does not repay you according to your iniquities. God repays you according to Christ's righteousness. You have this unmerited favor. You are righteous in Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. So we worship the God who forgives sins because we worship the the God who's come near in Christ to pay the price of our sins. And this is our great joy. This is the reason we're here, gathered in a cafetorium on a Sunday morning. We are here and we gather for worship each week because Jesus has paid for our sins. And there is no worship of God without this reality. So God can command, bless the Lord, because Christ came and paid for our sins. Through the gospel, that God saves sinners and creates worshipers for himself. So we praise the Lord because he is the forgiving God in Christ Jesus. We often talk about daily devotions or Bible reading, and this is an area where I think many of us struggle with guilt. We don't do it enough, perhaps. We think we we need to do it more, and and maybe we should. But I I hope that you see that your private, daily worship is supposed to be, to the end, that you would fellowship with the God who forgives sins. It's not just a rote act, a, a daily habit, It should be for the end of fellowshipping around the gospel, fellowshipping with the God who forgives you in Jesus Christ. So if you need greater motivation to to wake up and read your Bible, this is where it comes from. It comes from the good news that Jesus died to forgive your sins. It comes from the good news that God does not deal with you according to your sins. Wake up and face the God who does not deal with you or repay you but the God who graciously welcomes you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. So today and every day, worship the God who forgives sins. Worship the forgiving God. Our third call to worship is to worship the fatherly God. And it's as if David knows we're going to struggle with this idea of forgiveness, right? We're going to think, well, I know he forgave me yesterday, but will he forgive me today? I know he forgave me the 10,000th time, but what about 10,001? Well, we'll think, you know, have I reached the limit of God's love? And so in the next stanza of the psalm, he takes pains to demonstrate the extent of God's love. Let's read, beginning in verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So to show us the greatness of God's love and the greatness of God's forgiveness, David uses two pictures of distance. The point of both is, is to show us an infinite distance or to try to portray that. Right? And in the scientific age, we hear the, how far the heavens above the earth. And we think, well, you know, it's this far to get out of the atmosphere and this far to the nearest planet and this far to the sun. And that's not what David is thinking. I think he's thinking in, in spiritual terms. If the heavens are where God dwells and the earth is where we dwell, how far is that? How far is that distance? So far as that distance is, so great is God's love. Can you measure it? You can't measure it. And how, how far is the east is from the west? Right? The Lord is not meaning for us to think, well, if a jet plane leaves going east from Houston and one goes west, you know, he's not meant for us to think that. He's meant for us to think polar opposites. Places that never come in contact. That's how far God has removed our sin from us. So, sinner, justified sinner in Christ, how great is God's love? Well, it's that great, right? We see our children's books try to do this. I love you to the moon and back, right? Well, God is saying something even greater than that. How far has God removed your sin? It's complete. It's total. You can't see it anymore. He's taken it away. Another place that says he's cast our sins into the depths of the sea into hell itself so we don't need to worry will God change his mind tomorrow will I reach the end you know, will I reach the, the limit of my allotted amount of God's love no we don't need to feel that our, our status before God is, is, is a danger or a delicate like we're, we're before a judge who you know, depending on what he had for breakfast maybe harsher that day that's not our God Your sins can be numbered, but the greatness of God's love can't be measured. God's love for us can't be measured because our faith joins us to Christ, the Son of God. How much does God love Christ, His beloved Son? That's how much God loves you. And all of that, I think, is meant to bring us. All of those great heights and depths that need to us, all that's meant to bring us to the image in verse 13 the image of the fatherly god All right we have these three compa- uh, three comparisons as far as the heavens as far as the east is from the west and as the as the father has compassion on children so the lord shows compassion to those who fear him i think we need to to focus, or just to note that this is not talking about kind of god as capital f Father, right—the kind of proper name, father—that we we know God is. That's, that's wonderfully good news. But this is just this is actually using fatherliness as a metaphor, an image for God. Right? So he's he's picturing God as a good father, a father who's full of compassion. He says that kind of father is a picture of what God is like to his children. He says that. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Right? That word frame is the noun form of the Hebrew verb that was used when God formed mankind. He knows the way we're formed because he formed us, right? He formed us from the dust. And so just think about how a good father who's got a, you know, a four-year-old who knows the four-year-old needs special attention when they fall down and skin their knee, right? And he's gentle, with that four-year-old. He knows what that four-year-old is made of, right? He's gentle, and he cares for her. That's the way God is with his children. Now, Some of us have known fathers who are sinfully angry or distant or cold. I mean, that's, that's not the image of Father David is using here. He's, he's picturing for us a father who's full of compassion, A father who knows his child perfectly and uses that knowledge, not to hurt or manipulate, but to help and to nurture and encourage that child. Notice that scripture's ideal of fatherliness here, at least, is is tenderness and compassion. I, I hope all of us fathers here see that, right? Our our culture doesn't really maybe have that tenderness as part of our idea of masculine virtues, right? We might think of masculinity as what the football players do on the offensive and defensive line, right? They're just smashing each other. But, but no, manliness here is, is compassionate. It's tender. So fathers, are we, are we seeking to reflect this kind of compassion and care to our kids? Brothers and sisters, do you see the way David describes God here. He's a fatherly God. Do you know that God cares for you? He is the infinite God, the creator God over heaven and earth, and he's the God of fatherly tenderness. Right, we saw a picture of that when Jeff read for us the parable of the, the prodigal son, right? The, the father, when he sees the son a long way off, he does something shameful. He runs, right? Middle Easterners weren't supposed to run. That's not what fathers did. But that father doesn't care, right? He wants to go out and greet his son and kill the fatted calf and put the best robes on him, right? And he knows that his son was lost and found and it's a reason to celebrate. Do you see God like that? You know, the evidence of the father's love for us is that he sent his son, Jesus, to die. Jesus died and rose again so that we could enjoy the fatherly love of God. So we could know God's fatherly tenderness. He died and rose again so that we could be adopted into God's family. So that we could call on God as our capital F Father. When we pray to our Heavenly Father in the Lord's Prayer, we we shouldn't pass over those words quickly. because They they declare who God is and they, they show us something about him that we have the privilege and joy of worshiping the fatherly God. How does does a young child come into their their father's presence, right? It's not usually timidly, unless they've done something wrong, right? It's, It's joyfully, it's boundless, it's sometimes painful, right, when they run into you. That's how we're to enter into God's throne room, as his beloved children, seeking our fatherly God. We're to know that God loves us in Christ and nothing can separate us from his love. He has removed our sin as far as east is from the west because he's poured out his wrath on his beloved son, Jesus. God's love is infinite, so cast your cares on him. This is how we we fight anxiety as Christians, right? We know that God is a good father and he's not left us alone. One way you can worship the fatherly God is by recounting his grace to you with others. I want to encourage you to share with each other about God's fatherly care. What would would it look like if our lives were more often shaped by that? If our conversations had sprinkled through them, us telling about how God has been kind to us. I think that would really change a church. If it was just common for us to speak and testify of God's fatherly kindness and grace to us. That would be a good thing for us to grow in. I think there's, we see that among us and let's just keep growing in it. When you have a chance to talk with another Christian, trust that Christian is going to be encouraged by hearing about God's grace in your life. I mean, isn't that the case with you? When you hear about someone's testimony of salvation, doesn't it encourage you? Or you hear about the way God sustained them through trial. And they learned more of how to trust in Jesus. Isn't that well up praise in your heart? Trust and worship the fatherly God by telling of his praises and his grace to others. By God's grace, we get to do that when we gather. We sing songs about God's grace that is greater than our sin. Or his, his love divine, all love's excelling. Or his amazing love, right? We, we testify to each other in our songs of God's amazing grace. And we get to do that in conversations as well. One of the great benefits of the gospel is that lost sinners become sons of God, children of God. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer alienated from the covenant. We're part of God's family. And so in Christ, God becomes our father. And we get to know, perhaps some of us for the first time, what a good father is like, we get to know the fatherly God, that he's full of compassion. So worship the fatherly God. That's what this psalm calls us to do. In the next stanza, David builds on this image of our frailty that he introduced in 14, this idea that we're a dust. And now he expands on it by saying we're also like grass or flowers, a flower that's here for a moment and then withers with the wind. So let's read verses 15 through 18. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Here we are called to worship our everlasting God. This is another place, if you read Isaiah 40, you'll see another connection between some of the imagery here and the imagery there. Now, I say we're worshiping the everlasting God here, but David specifically draws our attention to the steadfast love of God. That's what he says is everlasting. The everlasting love of God is contrasted with how short our lives here are on, on this earth. You know, we're, we're here today and after three score and ten, we're gone, right? If the Lord grants us a long life. And this contrast is, is fascinating, though, because it implies there is a way for temporary creatures, here today and gone tomorrow, men and women, to enjoy the everlasting love of God. Right? There is hope for us beyond this life. That people who, who will live a short time and die can know the everlasting God. If, there's no, if there is no eternity with God, what good is an everlasting God do me, right? But, but we, when we vanish from this earth, when the, when the wind blows us away, we have the hope of being with God for eternity, eternal life. That we will enjoy this steadfast love of God that never changes for eternity to come. So the argument of this stanza is that if you know yourself to be a a temporal creature, you know, a here today and gone tomorrow person, then give your life to the worship of this everlasting God. Entrust yourself to this God whose love is from everlasting to everlasting, whose love never changes. Give yourself to the worship of the everlasting God. But how do you do that? Well, in the second half of this psalm, we see a kind of growing theme. It begins in verse thirteen when we're told that the Father shows compassion towards those who fear him. And then here in this stanza, God or the, David expands out what he means by those who fear him. In verses seventeen and eighteen, it's fleshed out in terms of those who keep his covenant and remember to do His commandments. So we see this the blessings of this psalm are not for every human being, without exception. It says they're particularly for those who fear the Lord, those who keep his covenant. That that kind of starts to seem like it goes against everything we've been saying, right? The Lord is gracious. The Lord's a forgiving God. I mean, fearing God seems to go directly against the idea of a loving God, this compassionate father. So how do we we understand this response? What does it mean to, to love and trust our good father and also to fear him? The well, theologian Michael Reeves, in his book, Rejoice and Tremble, describes the fear of the Lord as a love that trembles because of its object. A love that trembles because of its object. Because the object of our love is overwhelmingly and incomparably beautiful, holy, and glorious. He uses fear to describe this response To the overwhelmingly beautiful God, the overwhelmingly glorious God, the overwhelmingly holy God. And this fits with what the psalmist is doing in the the grand scheme of things, right? He begins by saying, Praise the Lord, bless the Lord, O my soul, and bless his holy name. The fear of the Lord that saves is the fear that is gripped by a right view of who God is and what he's done. It's a fear of the Lord that responds in faith and love. If we catch a true glimpse with the eyes of faith of the everlasting, unchanging love of God, we respond in this worshipful kind of fear, this saving fear. So worshiping the everlasting God is something that we do first by turning away from all the wrong things we fear, right? We talk, talk often about fear of man, and by that we just simply mean kind of over what people think of us, living for the respect or adoration of others. And we could multiply the things that we're tempted to live for, that we're tempted to fear, right? We might fear being destitute, and so we worship having a, a big savings account, right? We can fear lots of things wrongly, and the fear of the Lord reorients our fears. So this call to worship the everlasting God is, is a call to see ourselves rightly, that we are subject to sin and death, right? We're enslaved to sin, and we're under the curse of death. Our lives are short, It's a call to see that we are not masters of our own fate. We can't control everything that happens to us. Our lives can change in an instant. So we are creatures that are subject to the evils of this world. We're by nature enslaved to sin. And so this call to worship is a call to repent. It's a call to repent of the ways we've loved and worshiped and feared the wrong things. Right, we've sought to live our short lives as if they're not short, as if they maybe could be a, an unending string of pleasures, or maybe if your sights are lower, an unending string of avoiding pain. But our lives are not unending. We will one day face the everlasting God. And so we'll have to ask, am I worshiping myself or am I worshiping him? You know, on that day, when I see him, will it be a cause for joy or true terror? By calling us to worship the everlasting God and to fear the Lord, David is telling us there's only one way to prepare for eternity. Repent of your sins and trust in Christ. Apart from Christ and his work, eternity means only terror. But by faith in Christ, We can come to know and enjoy eternal life. We can come to know the steadfast love of the Lord, the everlasting steadfast love of God by repentance and faith in Christ. And we see this all the more when we look at the final stanza of this psalm and we see David proclaim to us the ruling God. Let's read beginning in verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens And his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. One thing to notice in these brief verses is how many times the word all appears. Right, that verse 19, his kingdom rules over all. And then at the end, we have a reference to all places of his dominion. All of the mighty ones and all the angels are commanded to bless the Lord, to praise him. This is one of the few places in the Bible where angels are given a command. Right? They're given the command to praise, praise the Lord. But it's, it's interesting here that the angels, they really have no share in our redemption, right? They, they, they're not called to praise the Lord because they've been saved the way we would, right? They haven't been shown any, any grace of God in that redeeming sense. This psalm has been all about God's grace to sinners, and yet the angels are called to praise God for that, And that that fits actually with what we see in Luke 15, not the part we read, but we we see in Jesus' three parables about things being lost and found, that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. Isn't that amazing? That God's heavenly hosts, their eyes are on what's happening here and what God is doing and who God is, and they're praising God for his great grace and salvation. That God's great works of redemption are a cause for cosmic praise, right? We see that in, the, in verse 22. All his works are to praise God. And if you want to kind of find where we fit in, it's the very last line, oh my soul. And we're just, we're just numbered here among all God's works, right? Trees and grass and us, right? This, this last stanza is mainly about the heavenly host praising him. And the end, a little bit about us praising him. So we're just one voice among all creation and all voices of heaven that join together to praise the God who saves. To praise the God of everlasting love. To praise the God of, of fatherly compassion. To praise the God who redeems. You know, particularly this passage is about praising God's rule, but we shouldn't separate God's rule from his saving work. God's saving work and his ruling work go together, right? For God's people, God's rule is a saving rule. To be a part of God's kingdom, we, we could speak of that in terms of salvation, right? To be a part of God's kingdom is to be saved. To be out of God's kingdom is to be excluded from salvation, and so the end of this psalm is a reminder of a future in which all things are in perfect submission to God. God's universal rule over all things in every place of his dominion, praising God. Right? There's no, there's no sinful dissenters in the last stanza of this psalm. Right? The picture here is every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that God is great and worthy of our praise. There is only worship here. So the Lord is revealed here in Psalm 103 as the eternal Redeemer, Creator, and Ruler of all things. He's the King of all creation, and He's the Father that knows we are dust. He's the perfectly righteous God, and He's the one who does not deal with us according to our sins. It's because of all of this that He deserves the praises of the highest hosts of heaven and each individual soul. The command is the same. Bless the Lord, you his hosts. Bless the Lord, you his ministers. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. Bless the Lord, all his works. And so if you can say, by faith in Christ, bless the Lord, oh my soul, you have discovered the purpose for which God made you. You were made by God to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so here in the words, we find our chief end, right? Because God is our creator and our redeemer, our loving father and our exalted king. We bless the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do bless you. You are worthy of all praise. It is good to meditate on your loving kindness and mercy to us. It is good to meditate on your fatherly care. And it's good to meditate on your, your universal reign and rule. That you are God over all. And yet, Father, we cannot help but think that your fatherly rule and reign is Is bad news for those who reject you. For those who are in rebellion, it means their destruction for eternity. And so even as we rejoice, we also tremble. And we long to see the children in this room saved and come to know you. We long to see our unsaved friends and extended relatives come to know you. And we pray, Father, that you would use us to that end, that we would be those who proclaim and bless the Lord, that we bless you for your grace to us, and we do so publicly and boldly, and we testify to the ways that sinners can be made right with you through faith in Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for you to continue doing your saving work among us and through us. And in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.